Hi, I'm Mark, the Membership Sales Manager here at the Geographical Association. Just before we get into this week's episode of JogPod, I'd like to encourage you to consider joining us. JogPod is produced by the Geographical Association. There are many reasons to be a member of the GA, the Association for All Teachers of Geography. Not only do you receive our professional journals each term, but you also get access to great quality resources, lesson planning ideas, and a huge archive dating back to 1901. But there's also help with the new education inspection framework and curriculum planning alongside discounts on books, maps and classroom tools. I hope you will consider joining the GA and adding your voice to ours as the voice of geography in education. Please visit our website geography.org.uk to join today. Now I hope you enjoy this week's episode of JogPod. the Geographical Association podcast. I'm John Lyon and today I'm talking to Dan Hammett who's Senior Lecturer in the Department of Geography at the University of Sheffield. It says on the, the website that your research interests are political and development geography and but primarily in relation to sub-Saharan Africa and I've picked up two themes from that. Geographies of citizenship and civil society and geopolitics of the global south which sounds really interesting so would you just expand on that for the listeners? Sure. So I'll start with the second of those, the geopolitics of the global south. It's, I work mainly in the what you refer to as being popular geopolitics. So there's three realms of geopolitics. There's formal, uh, practical and popular, the way we kind of talk about it in academia. Uh, the formal and, and practical sides look more at kind of estate-based policy, um, the ways in which governments present and justify their actions, uh, in essence, a lot of things that sit behind things like foreign policy and domestic policy and those kind of political decisions. The popular geopolitics side of things, which is where I find my interest lying, are more to do with how popular media, popular press communicate ideas around people and places. So this can be anything from looking at editorial cartoons in newspapers, so taking work of, say, Steve Bell in The Guardian or Zapira's work in South Africa, uh, Yana's work in Kenya, and understanding what messages the the cartoonists are trying to say and critique in terms of policy decisions. So uh, you could look at Steve Bell's work in relation to the making the crisis in Bosnia-Herzegovina and the, and the Balkans region more generally uh, a, a foreign policy issued from the British government in the 1990s. You could look at the recent cartoons relating to the umbrella movement protests in Hong Kong um, in various newspapers and how they've raised questions of the political power that sits behind protest movements, that sits behind governmental decisions in response to those, and also extending through even into kind of how newspapers represent countries and places and the way in which those continuing representations reinforce certain stereotypes and certain assumptions. So I was living in South Africa during the World Cup in 2010, and I was keeping half an eye on the, on the British press at the time and was very shocked but not exactly surprised with the way in which a lot of British press was portraying South Africa as a dangerous, violent space that that was then juxtaposed against the kind of white British innocence and the threat that that posed. So very much drawing on the ideas of Heart of Darkness of, of Joseph Conrad's kind of books in the Heart of Darkness. Um 
with a lot of reference to things like Edward Said's work on Orientalism and that othering process, and the way in which that was perpetuating a perception of South Africa as being part of the, to quote, dark continent, um, and kind of perpetuating that colonial bias and that racist bias towards towards the African continent as a whole, but in this situation, the, South, the country of South Africa particularly. Um, in terms of the citizenship and civil society side of things, um, I do a lot of work around how citizens seek to mobilise and engage with um, kind of claims to rights and social justice, often in what we might refer to as being hybrid political regimes, regimes that are seen as or claim to be democracies, but are perhaps led by very powerful individuals where elections may not um, always be as open as we might expect or hope they would be and therefore how in those situations where there's quite a closed public sphere for people to raise concerns and, and create spaces for dissent, how do citizens engage to claim rights, mobilise identities um, and so on in those situations. And so that work more recently has looked at the role of civil society in, in Rwanda in terms of the changing justice landscape post-genocide and how the how civil society organisations seek to mobilise around claims to human rights um, within and still promoting and supporting claims towards transformative and um, proximity justice. I think this idea of, of political cartoons is really interesting. I, I was looking at how geography teachers could use political cartoons, but then it got me to, to think even further into how Africa as a continent is portrayed in cartoons and in, yeah. in film. Yeah. So you look at films that promote Africa quite often are are all the cart all the characters are animals. So you look at Lion King, yeah. for instance. Note all the characters are voiced by white Western actors as well. Just a little side into that one, but yeah. <laughs> so it's it's just it's really interesting to think in in a different way about that yeah. and to think more critically about that. Unless you get that pointed out to you. Mm. It's just something that, if you're not careful, you just accept. Yeah, Africa is connoted or understood through that idea of the wilderness, the wild, um, and yeah, often given that kind of animalistic form, which can be very problematic in some cultures in terms of um, histories around deter or demeaning certain population groups of certain kinds of animals and using that to legitimate violence against them. So we saw that in the Rwandan genocide um, in particular and elsewhere but I mean, one of the interesting recent films that perhaps has decided to challenge that a little bit is Black Panther the, the, the Marvel film that's come out based in the notional country of Wakanda and there's been some really interesting kind of discussions around Black Panther as a film as to whether it offers a different view of, of development in Africa um, using, almost inverting the colonial discourse where suddenly Wakanda is a country that has this power through its its possession of vibranium, the, the natural resource it has, and is therefore seen and has developed technologies and become the kind of hyper modern country that other countries around the world wish to mimic and follow and, and take development lessons from. And again, the the way in which that film was cast has given a lot more prominence to black voices and black actors. There's been certain critiques made that it still perpetuates certain ideas of otherness and, and so on at the same time, but there is a slow shift, I think, starting to happen in some areas around that representational practice. But perhaps we can, we can return to a bit later in the conversation. Well, yes, that uh, talking about power and space brings me to your article, the, your, the article in the spring 2019 issue of Geography. It was called Whose Development? Power and Space and in International Development. 
And you, in there, you write really clearly about the beginnings of the era of international development and how identification of poverty in the global south and the assumption that the issue was a problem to be tackled by interventions from the global north led to that set of power relationships that still define what's happening today. I wonder if you would develop that a little bit further for, for us. Sure. I mean, you, if you wanted to... Well, let's start at the beginning of the, the modern era, if you like, of international development. So there's the speech of the of US President Truman at the time um, saying basically that it had become America's responsibility to, to lead progress in the world and to help other countries and the peoples realise the same development outcomes as themselves. That came in just in the aftermath of, of the Second World War. And what many scholars point to is the first international development aid kind of policy being the Marshall Plan where the US pumped a lot of money into the European economy to support redevelopment and reconstruction in the aftermath of the Second World War, when a range of countries across Europe were bankrupt, had seen their infrastructure destroyed. Um, and there was definitely a political dimension to this, in t- on two levels, I suppose, one political, one economic dimension. The economic dimension being that if America could help Europe redevelop and rebuild, it had a ready-made market for its exports. So there was definitely a financial aspect there. But also a political aspect where the US and its allies were concerned about the spread of communism into Europe. And certainly the Marshall Plan focused a lot of resources onto onto Greece. And Greece was very much seen as one of the countries that could fall to communism at the time. Um, so there was a kind of very much a political aspect to that. Just perhaps before we continue on with, with the kind of modern era, we can't talk about the modern era of international government without at least acknowledging how colonialism and imperialism form part of this narrative as well. They, they don't they didn't seek to achieve the same kinds of development outcomes in the same kinds of ways, but that history of skewed development and infrastructure being developed in certain countries to basically very rapidly export uh, natural products, resources, including slaves, to the West um, led to a very skewed set of infrastructure developments in countries. So, and also then the, the, the justification of the colonial mission as part of a civilising mission by various religious societies and, and, and other companies or organisations. So there's a lot of history there that we don't I won't get into now, but if you're starting to think of what, what development means and where its roots lie, we need to track that power relation back also to colonialism and the role of the West in determining even at that stage what was developed or who was developed and therefore what pathway should be followed. And ultimately those historical trajectories were were biased and were skewed towards fueling development of the West. So if you look at the the road infrastructure in many countries, it's designed to get resources very quickly to the coasts, to go onto ships, to be exported to the West. There's very little historical development within kind of colonial era development support within country development. Switching back then, sorry, I kind of go off on a tangent, but coming back to to the modern era, we start with, with Truman's speech and and that kind of setting up the agenda, which again very much positioned the West and certainly the US at that time as the core of, of that, that rhetoric. And building on from that, we've just seen a continuation largely of those, those practices that the key institutions that we see funding, promoting international development, the World Bank, the IMF, the organisations that set the rules of the game in trade, in terms of migration and so on, being based in, in the West and the, the kind of power of that dominant narrative continuing through those multilateral agencies, but also very much that flow of international development aid coming from the West or the global North. We'll come on, perhaps, hopefully we'll talk about the terminology of, of development in a moment, but 
yeah, the spatiality of, of development is very much seen as the West is seen as the space that is developed, and the non-Western spaces are those that are re requiring more more development. Um, I think I've lost track of your question, though. <laughs> no, I think that's fine because we we were explaining what to what we meant and we're, we're delving into it a little bit more I think now so what we're saying is the power of the global north defines what development means largely um, there's only been some efforts to try and challenge that over time but if we look at the dominant approaches certainly in terms of economics that have come through at different points in time they are driven by western ideology so we could look at the structural adjustment policies of the World Bank in the 1980s and 1990s you can clearly tie the rise of those to the emergence of neoliberal economic philosophy in the West of Thatcher, Reagan and Cole as the kind of key three leaders of Thatcher in the UK, Reagan in the States and, and Helmut Kohl in, in Germany. And those practices very much driving through um, what we've seen since. Some of those have been critiqued. Uh, we saw the rise of kind of anti-development scholars. We saw the rise of alternative thinking in, certainly in Latin America, people like Arturo Escobar and others offering critiques and alternative visions of what development meant and trying to recenter. The idea of development away from it being around kind of pure kind of economic development, around Western versions of modernity, and recognizing that development meant different things to different people, that there were different visions of how it could be achieved. Um, and so, one of the ongoing arguments is, that continues to this day is between top down and bottom up, to put it very bluntly. Do we see Western development models as being able to be applied uncritically in parts of the world, that throwing large amounts of money from top down? kind of high-level policies and interventions will lead to local-scale social economic developments on the ground, the realisation of rights, or is there a need to focus far more on local development needs and local interests? Um, there's a whole other conversation that we could have around participation in that and the, the question of who, of who needs to participate and what the burdens are, the hidden burdens of asking individuals or communities to be involved um, in that process. So if we're seeking uh, marginalised groups to be involved, do they end up, are they able to be involved without losing other parts of their livelihoods? It becomes a very complex issue. Um, but does the West still do dominate? It does. I mean, the, the Sustainable Development Goals were trumpeted as being a change from that, that they were designed by, um, or with input from people from across the world, not just by leaders in the global north, but for the, I mean, if we look back at the Millennium Development Goals and the development agendas preceding that period, they were very much driven by the leaders in the West, the elites in the West, who determined what those goals should be. The Sustainable Development Goals did involve a, m a much greater diversity of voices. And so there have been some change. One of the cru crucial changes between the, the Millennium Development Goals and the Sustainable Development Goals is the spatiality. So the, this refers to the Millennium Development Goals as the MDGs. The MDGs were cast as being only applicable to countries in the Global South. You should call the developing world, or the third world, depending on how far back you want to go with that terminology. Um, and the Sustainable Development Goals instead were seen as being applicable to every country. It wasn't about reaching a certain kind of threshold, it was about percentage increases. So every country was then meant to be subject to and encouraged to engage with, with those goals. So the UK, for instance, should still have a set of goals linked to the Sustainable Development Goals around child mortality, childhood mortality, nutrition, education. All of those aspects should still play into British policy. In political thinking and popular culture, I don't think anybody in the UK recognises that. I think there's been one of the key flaws of the, of the SDGs has been that whilst the ideal was there, in reality that's not come through as to how they've been 
realised in the north. But if you talk, so one of my research projects at the moment works with a British-based charity who works with young activists from across the world. And we provide training and support to those activists to engage with the Sustainable Development Goals, to engage with ways of realising um, rights and, and so on in, in local communities. One of the critiques that we often hear from the young people involved with those projects is that the SDGs still don't relate to their local community, that their local community doesn't engage with them because they were seen as being externally imposed, they're seen as being a form of colonial power, they're seen as being irrelevant to the daily needs. There's a, there is a mismatch often between the idealised goals and the everyday scrabble for existence or the, the pressing needs of daily life. Um, and actually one of my recent PhD students did a really interesting piece of work looking at um, healthcare provision in Nigeria, uh, in Kano State in Nigeria specifically, and comparing what would be needed in terms of resource to reach or to meet the Sustainable Development Goals targets around healthcare compared to what resource is there. And the fact is that a lot of the goals are simply unrealistic, that without, you're not going to be able to reach them by 2030 because you take so long to train medics, radiographers, nurses, etc., let alone to build the, the infrastructure in the hospitals that's needed. And the financial ca- capacity to support the, the dramatic increase in numbers of of clinics of staff that's needed is not it's not achievable and actually trying to set goals up to meet the sustainable development goals in some contexts could end up harming and undermining local development outcomes because the policy is skewed towards an unachievable ideal rather than perhaps a more pragmatic approach to thinking what can we do that will achieve change on the ground so there's a lot of critiques of the sustainable development goals I think they have been a big step forward a big improvement on the millennium development goals but they're still problematic they still feel to me as though they are underpinned by economic growth. Or would I be wrong? Um, I think it would be an interesting discussion to have. I mean, I, I would say it's not just the sustainable development goals that are underpinned by economic growth. I think a large or certainly kind of bilateral donors in terms of governments and certainly multilateral donors or investors like the IMF and World Bank, I would argue there's a lot of geopolitical and geoeconomic self-interest at play. Now, you could, let's leave aside the kind of NGOs, Oxfam, Christian Aid, others who are perhaps working with a more social justice framework through and through, and look at the, the major kind of international state donors. When decisions are made about international development, they've got to, you've got to justify that kind of foreign policy, that international development policy agenda to a domestic audience. We see in the UK this ongoing battle to justify to the populace in the UK why we should spend 0.7% of GDP on international development. The response to it is, well, there's poverty at home. Well, yes, there's poverty everywhere, and actually the sustainable development goals apply here, but nobody mentions that very often. So if we've got to justify to a domestic audience, to an electorate, to going to elect the political party to power, why that political party should invest, if you like, or spend development aid in certain places and certain agendas, there is always going to be a, a, a kind of self-interest aspect to it, and that's partly around economic growth, for a number of reasons. One is we can think back to, to Tony Blair and Gordon Brown's era in, in British politics where they specifically linked international development aid and to poverty alleviation as a means of reducing radicalisation and international terrorism. We can think about it in terms of where do we want to sell our goods to? Where's our market for exports? If we can help other countries develop economically, will that open up markets for our, for our goods? There are other questions then at play in terms of if you support poverty alleviation and, and, and economic growth elsewhere, Will that then shift um, migration patterns and, and pressures around international immigration and, and some of the concerns that, that that's raised in recent years? 
You've also got the political aspect where countries are investing in certain places or spending development in certain places to support allies, to support um, or develop kind of basically allegiances. And we see this certainly in geopolitics throughout the Cold War and, and to this day where development aid is used to support certain developmental outcomes. And there's one of the big critiques in recent years has been over the British government's st- professed stance around human rights um, in part region, certain regions of the world while at the same time providing um, support and assistance to governments who are seen to be um, abusers of human rights. There's very much putting it around that, where do you want your strategic alliances to sit in terms of the war on terror, in terms of access to resources, in terms of perceived threats and so on. So I've got a little bit away from that opening question of, is it around economic growth? Onto There's a lot of other factors around geopolitics and power and, and, and economics at play. Underpinning the SDGs, at the heart, to realise many of the social goals and the kind of the non-economic outcomes in terms of healthcare provision, in terms of um, protecting the environment and so on, it, there is a tension in that there is this still the privileging of we need economic growth to support international development or to support development in general without questioning who benefits from that economic growth. And that's one of the key issues here, I suppose, is if we support economic development and growth in certain places, who benefits? Is it still the elite, the middle classes, or is it assisting everybody? There's a lot of research that has shown that tackling development challenges for poorer communities... So economic growth does, in, in general, yes, it does underpin directly and indirectly a lot of the, the sustainable development goals. Economic growth will drive forward many of the other outcomes. You can't fund a strong health service without increasing tax revenue, without increased economic growth. So what the SDGs don't talk about is how do you develop a, a fair and progressive tax regime. So it's... A, I will stop because I could go on for hours on all of this. <laughs> but yes, economic growth still remains at the core. And the, but at least we are seeing a move in policy commitment towards a more holistic view of development that recognises there are multiple kind of capabilities, requirements, needs that can also be seen as development outcomes relating to sort of health, education, gender equality and so on. So if I'm sitting in the global south and I'm putting forward development alternatives... My voice isn't getting heard. But what are the sorts of things I'm saying? What are the researchers and the academics saying? Um, they're raising a sad question about, firstly, who determines what development is? Who determines where development happens? Who determines the conditionalities we often attach to development aid? So there's a big scandal. I mean, this is going back 20 or so years now, at least, to the British government providing a, a, a large amount of development aid to Tanzania. But it was tied to then the purchase of a I think it was British Aerospace um, air, defense, air Control System in a country that didn't need it. So those conditionalities, those tied commitments to aid are, are one of the, the key critiques. Uh, many critiques are also around recentering questions of, of what development means, of, kind of how do we think of development beyond, say, the economic side of things and purely economic growth, around whose voices are heard in... I think we've already mentioned most of the critiques. It's around whose voices are heard... Um, where developments seem to happen, who can drive it forwards, um, and recognising that there are multiple stories at play. There's a multiplicity of, of voices and of interests. And actually, how do we start within these development plans to recognise questions such as identity, indigeneity, land rights, identity very broadly, um, and the differing kind of contextual histories and backgrounds that inform how we begin to think through what development is. Mm. You mentioned earlier about the language, and you write about the spaces and language of development. Uh, 
you also said the experience of the global north is seen as the optimum path to development um, and that economic growth is the foundation so there's two elements here there's language and this space in my time I've taught over the past 40 years how bad's that I've talked about um, the third world yep. and the first world and the second world I've talked about the developing world and I glibly taught the Brandt mine in the 1980s and thought yeah. and thought that was perfectly acceptable. So can you just talk us through the development first of the language mm-hmm. and then of, of the space? Yeah, no, of course. Um, I mean, the First World, Second World, Third World division really was linked to the, the Cold War. Um, the First World was seen as the, the capitalist West. The second World was the, the communist East. And then the Third World was, if you like, the leftovers. The rest of the world that was there to be almost kind of fought over by proxies, as proxies in the conflict and so on. But more broadly, as a part of the world that was seen as poorer, as in need of, of further development and support and so on. And there's a very interesting story behind how um, those, that terminology came out, which linked certain to historical French language around the proletariat and so on, which is well worth it. I think it's in the article. So if anyone's interested, can have a read about um, So that, that kind of division was very much around... I, political ideology and economic philosophy. Um, and then the Brandt line came through with that in terms of then the line that was used by economists in the 1980s to divide the wealthier global north, as we call it now, uh, to the global south. So basically between the first and second and then the third world. And the Brandt line had a huge amount of political traction and power in terms of policy. It, it helped governments justify interventions. It helped... Um, the identification of, of spaces in which development aid would be sent to and, and development policy focused upon, and it it was it was a, a key product of its time that focused upon economics as the the sole development outcome, if you like. Um, as I, we've already kind of mentioned, some of the the alternative views or, or critiques of the development that have come out, people like Arturo Escobar and others, being highly influential in that. On the back of that, led to a, a shifting of language away from what became seems very derogatory terminology of first, second and third world towards developed and developing world. So the global north, sorry, the old first and parts of the second world being seen as developed and the third world and other areas then being referred to as the developing world, which was seen as slightly more progressive. It was seen as slightly less a determination of this is the status quo. So this is, you are a first world country, you always will be, you are a third world country, you will always be towards a sense of developed and developing, suggesting that developing countries were on a, traje- a trajectory to reach the development standard or, or level, if you have to put it, of, of the global of the developed world. That became critiqued very much in terms of, again, it, it was this idea that the, the West was developed. It had already reached its the highest state of modernity. It was already this status of, of being and it couldn't go any further and everybody should aspire to be like it. And that critique has then led to kind of linked very much to like the growing decolonial movement in academia and beyond to kind of say well this is a biased view it still privileges and prioritizes the global north as the producer of knowledge the producer of pa- the holder of power and so on um, and actually there's a lot of development outcomes in the global in, in the developed world that aren't particularly ideal that are very problematic and why would we want to aspire why would we want other countries to aspire to mimic those consumerist behaviours, that exploitation of resources, etc., etc. I guess also part of this is also then a growing recognition that the development trajectory of the global north was rooted in certain exploitative behaviours that cannot be mimicked any longer, that that, there is a bias there that needs to be understood. 
So more recently, we've seen then uh, on the back of these critiques of a questioning of, okay, we need to think a bit more about the kind of perhaps talking about the global north and the global south to, to recognise there are different spaces at play but different understandings and, and powers within this and taking away the, the pejorative idea of one area is developed and one area is developing and to recognise that development is ongoing everywhere at different paces in different guises and with different outcomes in mind but with differential histories and experiences in terms of colonial, colonialism, power relations, etc., so the Global North, Global South has really become the kind of main way in which a lot of people talk about international development and, and kind of global politics, global economics. It still implicitly relies, I think, to an extent on the brand line. We still kind of, that, that depiction, if you draw the Global South and Global North, it will still often mimic the mapping of the brand line, to be perfectly honest. Um, there is a more, very much more recent critique of Global South and Global North, um, which asks us to think about and it does link very clearly to the decolonizing movement, where who holds power and who where that power is concentrated. So the, the kind of emergent terminology at the moment is around the minority world and the majority world. And so we talk about the minority world as almost a replacement for the global north. If we think about the kind of the, the space, the geographical scale and, and spread of, of territory, but also the the volume of people, the global north is the minority. The US, Canada, the UK, Europe, etc., is Australasia. Geographically, the smaller part of the world and with the population, small population. The majority world asks us to think okay, well, how can the minority world has become so developed in terms of economic growth, in terms of technology, and in terms of how we've got to holding the power that we hold in, in the minority world? Why do we, as the minority world, then have the justification? Why should we be telling the majority world how to act, how to behave, how to develop, how to do design, design policy and so on? And I find that, that movement really powerful and really important in that it asks us to, to recognise the historical inequalities, the historical power relations that inform the continued dominance of international development discourse and policy and practice by the global north. And to actually begin to ask us very forcibly to question and recognise the histories of racism and colonialism that underpin it and the continued ways in which it is development is often deployed for benefits that are actually felt by the minority rather than the majority. I think the terms are difficult because it's it's shifting sand. I think it's hard for teachers and it's hard for yeah. students to understand. Um, one of the examples is using the World Bank classifications, yeah. and then that in, that allows them to shift as the World Bank shifts. Yeah. So that they've got a they've got a fixed classification which they use. But as the World Bank changes it, then the exam board are able to change it yeah. in the same way. So it doesn't become rigid yeah. and, and solidified in time. But it is hard for students because they look through textbooks and you've got that whole range of terms depending on who's using what. Exactly. And that, the, that linking to the World Bank definition is really interesting because the World Bank's, in the last few years, have been a series of blog posts or blogs from the World Bank where people have said they're removing certain categories of, in terms of development to try and recognise the fluidity and try and take away some of the stigmatisation that's gone with it in the past. So there's really interesting developments. But they are happening very quickly, and as an academic who, who works in the field, I can't always keep up to speed with with all the recent developments and so on, because it is, it is as you say, shifting sands. I think the key thing is for people to think critically about the power that sits behind the terminology that is being used. And if it doesn't, if it feels outdated, it probably is outdated. And if you're 
a student or a teacher who's going, why is suddenly somebody talking about the global north or minority world? To have a pause, have a think about what, what perhaps this is indicating as we recognise the, the histories of inequality and power that sit behind this. And to think critically with the terms that people are using um, and that ongoing basis is, is crucial, I think. If you're not careful, it, it leads to neg- negative stereotypes, doesn't it? And, yeah. and overing. Yes. So, I mean, that, I mean Edward Said's seminal text on, on Orientalism that kind of underpins a lot of this theoretical work, but simply recognising how we position ourselves in, position, in relation to others, this dichotomous relation of how, how do we identify who we are, or I am, is done through how we position and identify others. So, Said's work is really around um, uh, the West and um, parts of Southeast Asia and the kind of the dynamic at play there between the what he referred to being the Occident and the Orient, and the, but those ideas have now been adopted as a really kind of framework in which we talk about those processes far more generally in relation to identity construction at many different scales and across many different spaces. So we've seen certainly you can link that then, as I mentioned earlier on, to the way in which Africa has historically been positioned as the dark continent. And so Joseph Conrad's book, The Heart of Darkness, being perhaps one of the easiest ways into this, and obviously not applicable for, for many students unless they're at A-level, um, but for teachers, um, the film Apocalypse Now is basically a, a reimagining of the heart of darkness but into the Vietnam War, and you see the the, the way in which the, the main characters in that change and evolve through the film mimics this idea of um, what happened to Kurtz in, in, the heart, in Joseph Conrad's book as he travelled um, into the Congo. And it plays on these ideas of, of Africa as being dangerous, wild, savage, maddening. And those stereotypes, those negative ideas, those tropes and discourses still resonate today. If you look at discourses in the media around migration, around other countries and continents, you see that representation of other people and places as being dangerous and savage. Um, there's a huge amount of work certainly within geopolitics that looks at that, how that's played out and how that reinforces public perception of different parts of the world and it is a huge problem we could look at it as a popular culture in terms of how um, certain um, groups certain um, countries are positioned as generally the bad guys or bad girls bad women in films um, the who the who are we fighting against in terms of um, major film franchises now you could link this same popular geopolitics you could look at the, the evolution of the Bond franchise and how that's gone charted a change in threat from and through the Cold War to the War on Terror and to, to rogue states and to money laundering and so on and so forth. Um, but in other films we see increasingly the kind of representation of parts of the world as this dangerous other, as a threat to, to us. Um, I think one of the, the really interesting things, if you look at, want to think critically about how we think about and talk about development in the UK, is watch those TV commercials that come out from the Disasters Emergency Committee or from... Um, the various kind of charities seeking to raise funds, Water Aid recently adverts continuing to kind of focus and dwell upon the vulnerable African child taking dirty water from a pool is a very much a stereotyped representation of who needs development, of who is vulnerable, and often taking away agency and not understanding and not reflecting upon it's very hard in a short advert, I recognise that, to think about the power dynamics and the economic development policies and Sort of sit behind those inequalities. I mean, yeah, thinking about that, those that process of othering, we can think very clearly of things like the Radiator Wars and elsewhere that really do critique and question how that happens. Hmm. 
uh, yeah, I think it was a year ago now that David Lammy talked about uh, some of his issues with comic relief. And he, there was a, a, a Twitter storm. He was talking about, what I think what was termed white saviours, that sort of yeah. approach. Um, and how African countries, at least he was talking about African countries, because quite often Africa is a country. It's, that's the way it's seen. And how their people are perceived and portrayed. And I, I just went and had a look at uh, Amanda Cozy Mukwazi, who's the she's the first black chief executive of Christian Aid. She said, "We in the aid sector have to face up to our part historically in perpetuating a tired and one-dimensional picture of Africa." Um, and I've talked in the past with with other people about the author Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie and the danger of a single story. Yeah, it, it's not. What they see isn't necessarily wrong, but it's a tiny snapshot of the whole truth. Yeah. And it suggests Africans are helpless and that they just, they lack agency. Yeah. I think that, I mean, so the, the, there's been a growing shift of recognition, I think, within certain international development agencies around this. And it is, it is a broad, it is a huge challenge. Um, and it is that idea that there is one, that we can homogenise the, the global south or the majority world to one single experience. In reality, it's highly variegated. It's, it, the intersections between ethnicity or sexuality, gender, or there's so many different experiences of different groups within any single country, let alone between the different countries, um, is, is huge. And you say that there is this ongoing challenge that people think of Africa as a country, when it's made up of dozens and dozens of countries, and with hundreds of, of different ethnic groups, language groups who all have different experience, different experiences and different histories and begin to understand how those different narratives play out. Um, you mentioned um, comic relief and certainly Radiate has been at the core of, of critiquing um, comic comic relief and sports aid and every year when I see it come, come however long it comes around I always get the same cringeworthy feeling of oh, this is the, 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 the 24 hours or the week or however long the campaigns run for where we all get to feel good about ourselves for raising a few pounds that might make a slight difference, but actually we're not changing the systemic in structural inequalities that underpin why certain countries are poor and why certain countries are wealthy. You sound as cynical as me over this. <laughs> my, my, my wife always says, just shut up and watch it. <laughs> because I shunt to the way you've just done over it. But why do you want to watch Ed Sheeran going and becoming all friendly with a, a, a young street child in Sierra Leone when he's not actually questioning why this person... And then the, the, uh, this is a, a film, was it, I think it was 2017, that the clip that I'm talking about was made. And we get to this point in, in this in this comic relief clip where Ed Sheeran wants to um, take the street child and, and put him into a hotel for a night and do all sorts of things. It's a very much a Western white saviour moment of paternalistic concern where there's no question of what the young person wants, why they're in that situation, and no addressing of the underpinning challenges there. And it, it is incredibly cringeworthy. Um, I mean, there's been a whole series of adverts that, that have mimicked that, that kind of approach. And it's led to this, what we often refer to as being poverty porn, where there is this obsession with gazing upon the poor and, and conducting safaris of the poor to see how the, the poor live. And on the one hand, it's meant to mobilise our concern and, and, and wallets to, to support. On the other hand, it's probably also helping reassure us that we are not as bad off as we could be. Um, but if it, I mean, I think if teachers want to engage with this in the classroom very critically, look at the Radiator Awards. Yes, they've, they've stopped awarding the Golden and Rusty Radiator Awards in recent years, but the archive is there, the materials are there, and it's a wonderful moment to begin to think critically about how do 
we represent? How do we think about different parts of the world? And how would you begin to change it? Because they, they present the Rusty Radiator Awards, which are the ones which perpetuate stereotypes. They perpetuate this lack of agency and the requirement of the West to be the paternalistic deliverer of, of, of saviours and so on. And they also highlight the ones that have been very positive. The gold radiators. The gold radiators, which offer a very different view. And actually, there's, a, there's one I think that's from, I can't remember from Australia or New Zealand now, which took you through a set of stereotypical kind of representations and undermined every step of the way. And it was wonderful in terms of saying, well, why do you think this is what the outcome should be and why this person would be in this situation? Um, and they did their own, I mean, there's a couple of ones that I really find. There's, there's that one, I can't remember the name of. There was one from the um, White Helmets in Syria that was uh, involved, kind of, um, it starts out with what could be Batman, and kind of a young person chasing Batman through a, 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 a camp in, in Syria. And it ends up being around this very emotional story of how his father's trying to make his son emotionally survive the conflict. And it just, it's pulled at the heartstrings, but it didn't, denigrate the characters it didn't take their agency away it it reified and it raised the importance of how they were trying to cut the importance of coping strategies in that and finally I mean, their own the Rusty Radiator's own one which was um, kind of radiated for Norway of kind of, of, of that was so funny you reminded me because I hadn't I'd forgotten about it to be honest and I'd used it before but after I'd read your article I went back on and I, and I watched it again yeah. what a powerful film Representing Norway as being cold, frozen, needing to raise money to pay for radiators and heating for people in Norway. It was, yeah, it's wonderful. It, again, it asks us to think, okay, why are we making assumptions about parts of the world? Why are we representing things in certain ways? And I think the crucial message to all of this is there's a, so many resources out there that can be looked at and critiqued and reviewed. You don't need to rely on written text. You can use political cartoons, you can use advertising clips and commercials, you can use popular culture references to begin to think about how do we understand different parts of the world and whose power goes into that defining how we represent parts of the world. You've just answered my last question, really, because that was that, that I was going to say, how do we encourage more critical thinking? How do we encourage it in, in our lessons? And you've just done that with that final paragraph. That's fantastic. Listen, thanks for joining us on JogPod today. That's been fascinating yet again. You're very welcome. Next week, I'll be talking to Chris King, Professor of Earth Science Education at Keele University.